If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with a new season and a new case. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he didn't commit. More than 30 years later, is it still possible to get to the truth? And who gets to tell it? Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. Jenna here, and I'm excited to share with you one of my favorite podcasts, which recently came back for its sixth season, The Uncertain Hour. The Uncertain Hour is an award-winning podcast from Marketplace, where host Chrissy Clark dives into the obscure policies and forgotten histories that explain who gets ahead in the U.S. and who gets left behind. And if that doesn't sound fascinating enough, the series was featured on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. This season, Chrissy investigates the for-profit companies that run many of America's welfare offices and how they're cashing in on work requirements for welfare recipients. Listen to The Uncertain Hour wherever you get your podcasts. I remember like the maybe the fourth day we were lining up outside our classrooms and as I'm coming out, she was like getting into like her her spot in line and we looked at each other and it was a moment of it was like a twilight moment like oh remember like wait they would oh like 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 like, wait a minute this is valencia bailey and her mother gail guyans remembering the first day valencia met sakia gunn in the sixth grade there's another one like i'm not the only one like oh there's someone like me like hold i mean we looked at each other and just looked at each other and we did this and it was like and like towards each other with our fingers like you me you mean it's like and that was, that was it. it from that point forward valencia says she and sakia were inseparable they spent all their free time together played hours of basketball together hung out in newark and new york went to parties chased girls together The two were so close that Valencia says their bond went beyond friendship. They were family. That that was my cousin, my best friend, and like my twin. Like we shared clothes, like what clothes, jeans, shirt, and a hat. (laughs) (laughs) Some with some some sneakers. You know what I mean? Like we we were the dudes. Like we had our we had our 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 fits. We had our gear on. That's what we. Then that's how yeah. You know? Oh yo, because we used to call it gear. We never used to call it fits. It was called gear. You know what I mean? We had the hottest gear out. See, there was no other ags in the school. An AG, or aggressive, for those who haven't heard the term, was popular in the late 90s and early aughts with queer people of color, especially Black lesbians, to describe someone who was gender non-conforming and more masculine in appearance. You gotta remember, (laughs) back in them days, it was called, okay, you're like a tomboy. But there was really no hard tomboys in the neighborhoods except us. Valencia expands on her closeness with Sakia. Not only did the two sixth graders mirror one another as the only two AGs in middle school, but they also shared dreams of playing basketball for the championship-winning women's basketball team at the University of Connecticut. They had birthdays literally back-to-back in May, and they knew they wanted to get out of Newark. Valencia's mother, Gail, says 
The girls were so close, they would often have conversations with one another through nothing more than glances. But even with their soulmate-like bond, Sakia was still the leader amongst Valencia and her peers. While Valencia and Sakia grew up in Valesburg, it was Sakia who convinced Valencia and several other kids to attend high school at Newark's West Side High in the Central Ward. I want to pause right here. If you have heard of Sakia Gunn, it probably wasn't for any of that. Sakia and Valencia never got a chance to live the future they planned together. Sakia Gunn was murdered just shy of her 16th birthday in the early hours of May 11, 2003, Mother's Day. Welcome to After Broad and Market from the WNET Group's Chasing the Dream and LWC Studios. I'm Jenna Flanagan, the series' lead reporter, producer, and host. This series isn't true crime. We aren't trying to solve any mystery or speculate as to what happened to Sakia that night. It's known, a documented fact. Sakia's killer, Richard McCullough, turned himself in, pled guilty, and was convicted by the Essex County Superior Court on the charges of murder in the first degree, unlawful weapon possession, aggravated assault, and two counts of bias intimidation under New Jersey's then new hate crime laws. I had a chance to sit down with Valencia and hear her publicly recount what happened that night for the first time since Richard McCullough's sentencing. For the next few minutes, Valencia takes me through what she so clearly remembers and cannot forget. I also draw on police reports, court records, and press coverage. I want to be clear, the point of this series isn't what happened to Sakia at the intersection of Broad and Market that night, but everything that happened after. In the early morning of May 11, 2003, Sakia, Valencia, and three other girls were waiting for the bus home at the intersection of Broad Street and Market in downtown Newark after a night out on Manhattan's Chelsea Piers. Everybody's still amped up from being in New York, <laughs> being in the fair, being over there in the village. So, we, you know, it was just, everybody was happy. You know, everybody was cool. Everybody was good. So we were out there swinging on the, uh, under the scaffold, just on the poles, just having a good time, pull-ups, just swinging back and forth, having a good time. Well, um, my husband, eventually we were standing on the uh, corner and we were, she was looking down the street, we was waiting for the bus. And I was standing on the side of her, we know what time the bus is coming. We done did this a million times. So I'm like, I get you right, no problem. So we continued to walk up um, to go to the market and it was five of us out there. And I had said, my stomach started to feel funny. Just, just funny, just not, it was unsettled. It was my intuition, real and I was like, yo, cuz, my, my stomach feel funny. Like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, let's just walk down this way. And she was like, nah, I don't want to miss the bus or whatever. And I'm like, all right, okay, whatever. So I'm still feeling funny. The car pulls up. Well, you know, it's coming up the street. And it gets worse. This feeling in my stomach gets worse. So I bend over. 
And I'm like, you know, cause like this, let's just walk real quick. Like, you know what I mean? Walk down the block. She's like, nah, like the little bus coming. I'm like, I don't feel well. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I don't feel too good. So the car pulls up. Inside the car was Richard McCullough and another man, the driver, Alan Pierce. According to Valencia, the men hollered at or called out to the group from the car window, asking if they wanted to, quote, go to a party another sexual innuendos. Sakia told the men they were lesbians and not interested. We had already told them, nah, as soon as they pulled up, nah, we're gay. We're, we're fine, we're okay. Um, they still continue to continue. That's when the girl, one of the girls, I don't even know her damn name, started talking to the dude or whatever. They decided to park the car. Oh, uh, they back up, they park. Valencia went on to describe a scene where one of the femme-presenting girls in the group began to antagonize the two men as broke or bums. The men parked their car and Richard McCullough got out to approach the group. Valencia said as he came closer in pursuit of one of the young women, Sakia stepped in to defuse or rebuff Richard's advances again by asserting the group were all lesbians. That is when, according to Valencia, McCullough directed his attention to Sakia and herself. She says he feigned a punch towards Sakia. We didn't flinch at anything. And he's like, nah, I'm just with you. Now, the other dude who was with him had already was, uh, this is the other dude, Alan. This is not Richard. And um, he like, chill, chill, chill. Like, you know, he, he was cool. Like, he was like, chill, 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 leave them alone, they ain't doing nothing. In Valencia's recollection, McCullough almost left them alone, following his friend's advice and walked back to the car. Once he reached the passenger side door, McCullough turned around and called Sakia to him, gesturing with his hand that she should approach the car. My cousin says, I don't have to come to you. You're not my father. Which is true. We don't. I don't have to go to you. I ain't got to come to you. You're not my father. At that point, things escalated. McCullough produced a knife, a switchblade by Valencia's recollection, and holding Sakia from behind, knife pressed to Sakia's neck. Valencia says the two slowly spun around backwards as Sakia attempted to slip out of McCullough's hold. He goes like this. Sakia then broke free from Richard's grip and tried to create distance between them. Valencia recalled McCullough swung the knife in a wide circle, nearly nicking the two girls. I didn't think he hit her or anything, but he went like this in the motion of her. She done swung on him, so she runs behind me. So now as I'm still, I'm going towards him so I can be, you know, I got about like this, maybe this close to him. It was like maybe this space. And I stopped. It's about two feet or so. Yeah, about, I got maybe like two, three feet within striking range of him to, you know, stab me a couple times if he wanted to. And I just stopped. God just, something just stopped me. And I turned around. And like, when she ran behind me this way and stuff, and I went to lunchroom, I just stopped. And I just turned around. And I said, I, I froze. She says McCullough lunged a second time at the girls. And while Valencia spun around to avoid the blade, she says from the corner of her eye, she saw what appeared to be his hand that was holding the knife make contact with Sakia. In that moment, it was just like, oh my God, because 
you bleeding? And she looked down. She stopped. She looked down at me. She looked down at her shirt. And then she looked back at me. She took like maybe two, three steps and stumbled back and hit the ground. According to the Essex County Medical Examiner, Sakia died of a single stab wound to the left side of her chest that pierced her heart. I seen her shirt go from white to red within less than a second because she ran behind me. So once I saw her hit the ground, I um I ran I immediately ran to her. And it was like, come on, cuz, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. McCullough immediately got back in the car and the two men sped away, leaving Valencia on the corner of Broad and Market holding her best friend Sakia while the other three girls frantically tried to flag down a car to take them to the hospital. From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR. 15-year-old Sakia Gunn, an openly gay, masculine-presenting, popular teen, bled out in the arms of her best friend, Valencia. I made several unsuccessful attempts to get in touch with Richard McCullough to get his version of that night's events. According to court records, McCullough admitted to calling Sakia a, quote, dyke, and insisted that she, quote, ran into his knife. Witnesses in the courtroom also claim that McCullough routinely referred to Sakia as, quote, the little dude. As aggressives or AGs, Sakia and Valencia both proudly wore masculine-style clothing. Many of Sakia's friends reported that the first time they met her, they too thought she was a boy. The night Sakia was killed, she was wearing a sleeveless white undershirt, an oversized white long-sleeve shirt over an equally oversized white t-shirt, blue athletic pants, white sneakers, and a white do-rag. The medical examiner's report indicated all of her clothes were soaked in blood. When Sakia died, Valencia says police kept her alone in small rooms in the emergency room for hours after, repeatedly asking her to recount her story of what happened. They take me and they put me in a, a room just a little bigger than this. If we was to go in your own DNJ today, I could still show you exactly which room it was. Um, because it's right there by the desk. <laughs> Can't miss it. Um, they left me, they put me in there, and I couldn't go anywhere without a cop watching where I went. I couldn't go find my cousin, they wouldn't give me no information on my cousin, they wouldn't tell me what the f- was going on. I went to go get a drink of water, there was a cop right in there. <laughs> So that I went and go in the back looking for my cousin. Couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. It was hours, hours. Nighttime had came again. Mind you, this happened in the early morning, nighttime. Nighttime is around again. I still ain't been asleep. I still haven't seen my cousin. I still haven't had a moment to myself to process anything. And I'm 15. On a Mother's Day. 
Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. Back on Market Street, the Newark police were wrapping up their crime scene investigation. Word had begun to spread among Newark students and queer community about Zakia's murder, and mourners began to gather at the busy downtown intersection. At the time, I lived at 197 Market Street, which is, you know, almost at the corner of Broad and Market. I went to the corner spot and I saw a bunch of, you know, young people, um, you know, in clumps and groups. And uh, unlike this kind of rowdy group, they were they were sullen. They were maudlin. They were sad. This is Kevin Taylor a Newark-based writer working on a novel at the time. Today, he is the director of the LGBTQ services at the North Jersey Community Research Initiative. So I'm outwardly crying. I'm thinking, what did I miss? You know, we only get that kind of public, uh, especially collective loss look from the community when somebody dies, an Aaliyah, uh, somebody of note. And so I didn't know what had happened. But as I was walking through them, I noted that a number of them had put rainbow stickers on the table. And I thought, what is happening? What is happening? And by the time I got out, I went to the corner and saw one of the community leaders. And they were like, yeah, this young girl got killed and we're going to start gathering people. So I went inside, uh, changed clothes. I think I just slipped on some, you know, something to come outside. And so I changed clothes. And I think, you know, that was about two thirty, three o'clock. By five, six o'clock, there were a couple hundred people on the corner. By nightfall, there were 2,000. But as weeks passed, it became clear that the chants from protesters and community leaders were going unheard. This was the point where I was first introduced to Sakia's story. As a reporter for WBGO, I was assigned to cover the many protests and rallies that took place in downtown Newark after Sakia's death. I found myself struggling to understand why Sakia's death wasn't garnering the same level of attention from national, black, and queer media as Matthew Shepard or Lacey Peterson or Natalie Holloway. It was almost a year later when the late Gwen Ifill, speaking at a journalism conference, gave the phenomenon a name. I call it the missing white woman search syndrome. <laughs> if there's a missing white woman, we're going to cover that every day. <laughs> In fact, Eiffel's words made such an impact that the Columbia Journalism Review created a mathematical formula for Eiffel's missing white woman syndrome with a website called areyoupressworthy.com. Their formula determined a gender nonconforming black teen from Newark would generate only two stories in the press versus over 120 if they were a suburban white woman. So I'm seeing all this mounting attention within one community on the one hand, and then a lack of attention in mainstream media. And the more I looked into the issue, I thought, you know, I need to follow this and I need to ask my colleagues in journalism, how, you know, what do they think of the the way coverage decisions are being made? 
Kim Pearson is professor of journalism at the College of New Jersey, who wrote the study on the disparity in Sakia's press coverage. Then on my blog, I just started keeping a tally on the 11th of every month of how many stories were done about uh, Sakia Gunn, about her case, about um, and were they tied to broader implications? Because I started seeing that uh, there were these murders happening around the country of um, young LGBT. She says the difference was almost immediately noticeable. People of color, young trans people, trans women of color. Um, and, you know, as I started seeing these disparities, and particularly I compared it to the murder of Matthew Shepard, because that seemed to, at that time, it was like the benchmark. Um, and I just started asking questions. You know, I, I sent an email to the National Association of Black Journalists and said, hey, I noticed that, you know, within the first month after Sakia Gunn was murdered, there were like eight stories in the LexisNexis database, whereas within the first month of Matthew Shepard's murder, there were hundreds of stories just in major newspapers. And what do you think about that? And then I, I contacted the vice president at the National Gay and Lesbian Journalists Association and asked the same question. And to be honest, the responses that I got initially kind of shocked me. Kim recalls the initial response from some Black journalists was a deflection of the gravity of Sakia's murder. At the same time, she says some LGBT journalists downplayed Sakia's death as just another senseless murder of an inner-city kid. Kim paraphrased the individual as suggesting, it happens all the time. Small murders versus good murders, you know, convention, uh, you know, poor Black person killed another poor Black person. Isn't it a shame? And I, you know, and, and he even said to me, um, I raised the question of the murders that were happening in other parts of the country, the Matthew Shepard murder. And he said, well, you know, I don't see why a, an editor, say, in, you know, in a Western state would be interested in the murder of Sakia Gunn. And I thought to myself, well, there are people lifting up Sakia Gunn's name, you know, in pride marches all across the country. There are these patterns of anti-gay, you know, violence, you know, happening across the country, why would you not be interested? So I reached out to the most prominent voice fighting for LGBTQIA visibility in Newark after Sakia's death. Well, I was woefully disappointed, I have to say. Uh, um, you know, I love Newark. If you cut me, I bleed bricks. But when it came to LGBTQ issues, I was very frustrated. That, of course, is New Jersey's junior senator, Cory Booker. But at the time of Sakia's murder, Booker had just finished his first attempt at taking Newark's City Hall. He says he wasn't prepared for the indifference and, quote, gravity of hatred he found in his beloved Newark. I just found a lot of things about our community at large not recognizing the, uh, the, the extent and the truth about um, how the LGBTQ community was being targeted, not just for violence, but also uh, for hate in general. 
He says that disappointment extended as news of Sakia's murder never truly took hold in the national conscience. So I, I think in those years even leading up to being mayor, I was not just disappointed with my own community, I was disappointed with my country. Uh, because this was a time that, I guess this was five, less than 10 years after Matthew Shepard, where it had become a, I mean, his name was known uh, throughout our land of this horrific hate crime. And here was a, a black girl murdered uh, savagely uh, in a hate crime, clearly a hate crime, but it wasn't something that seemed to spark this rallying of the larger community uh, to address uh, all the underlying line conditions uh, that could be contributory towards a climate of hate and violence. Actually, Matthew Shepard's murder had taken place just four and a half years prior. For Booker, the attitude towards Newark's LGBTQIA community did not budge, even three years later when he became mayor in 2006 and raised the pride flag at City Hall. I got uh, all these calls of hate, and they weren't anonymous calls. There were people telling me who they were, leaders in the community even, and how they felt like um, I had committed some grievous uh, offense, sin. Uh, I had folks telling me that they supported me in the election I had just had and they would never support me again, uh, that I wasn't welcome to visit their religious institution because I was the first mayor in, in Newark history to raise the pride flag. As anyone following the news today can tell you, the climate of hostility and even hatred Senator Booker speaks of is not at all hyperbole. In 2013, a group of LGBTQ rights organizations, including the Trevor Project, the ACLU, PFLAG, and the Human Rights Campaign, published an open letter in response to the murder of Trayvon Martin, invoking Sakia Gunn's name, among several others. In it, they stated, Every person, regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation or gender identity must be able to walk the streets without fear for their safety. The story of Sakia Gunn isn't just the story of what happened between two individuals on a street corner in the middle of the night. It's the story of how every aspect of who we are and how we are perceived by others can shape the lives we live. In the next episode, I'll explore how race, orientation, gender expression, and even cultural expressions of religion all converged to create a uniquely vulnerable space that Zakia still thrived in. After Broad and Market was co-produced by the WNET groups Chasing the Dream and LWC Studios. I'm Jenna Flanagan, the lead reporter, producer, and host. Aaron McIntyre is the executive producer, Daniel Greenberg is the executive in charge of production. Juleka Lantigua is the series editor. Paulina Velasco is the managing editor. Shant Alexander is the associate producer. Cindy Rodriguez and Chelsea Rugg are producers. Michelle Baker is an associate producer. Elizabeth Nakano mixed this episode. Kate Gallagher is the fact checker. Kojin Tashiro is lead sound designer. Cover art designed by Karen Brazell. Original mural art by Tatiana Vazalizadeh. 
The legal consultants are Marta Castang and Matt Clark. For Chasing the Dream, Eugenia Harvey is the executive producer. Maria Stoyan is the senior producer. Catherine Carpenter is a producer, and Shannon Damiano is the production assistant. Audience engagement provided by Lindsay Horvitz. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III.